This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello. The past year has been a strange one for air travel. So this week, we're talking to two incredible pilots about how they got into the skies and what the last 12 months have looked like at work. Joining us from Fort Lauderdale is Stephanie Hartsfield, a commercial pilot and commander in the Naval Reserves. And from Atlanta, Kelly Young, a flight instructor, cargo pilot, and the first black female pilot for the Coca-Cola company. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So to kick it off, I figured we'd go back to the beginning. How did travel or flying factor into your lives growing up? I will say that I come from a traveling family. My mother's nickname is Gogo given to her by my cousin who witnessed her always going, going, going and was like, I want to go-go. And so it became Auntie Go-Go. And my grandparents would travel all over the world. They were both um, ordained ministers in the Baptist church, American Baptist church. And so they traveled. I remember my first passport was when I was, I think, two years old and I had to get updated when I turned four to go on a family trip. We did um, a flight from um, JFK to Lagos, Nigeria, and then multiple countries in West Africa at four years old. So my earliest memories of my grandparents are related to traveling and they they nicknamed me their traveling buddy. Um, So I would say I was I have a, a wanderlust gene. I'm obsessed with Go-Go. That is so great. Yes. (laughs) Kelly, how about you? Uh, When I was six years old, my mother took a job with Delta Airlines uh, working for their credit union, which she did intentionally so that we would be able to travel as kids. She never left the state of Georgia until she was 21 years old, married to my father and pregnant with me. Um, So her first flight was when I was six and we went to Tampa as a family. Uh, And from there... I just wanted to read all the travel books that there were. That's all I wanted to check out from the library. Um, and it really sparked my interest in just wanting to see what else the world, you know, had to offer. I think it's really interesting what you said about how, you know, you just wanted to soak up all these travel books. And I think so much of when you're traveling as a child, it shows you what 
is possible and the opportunities that lie ahead of you. Do you think both of you, if you hadn't had that connection to travel growing up, that you would have considered, you know, going into aviation as a possibility? I don't think I would realize until I actually flew the plane myself that that was a possibility for me. And it may have been because of role models. It may have been because of socialization and and how we um, imagine ourselves as adults when we're children. Um, It just it doesn't necessarily connect for me until I actually took that discovery flight. And then it all made sense. It's like, oh, here's the freedom I love. Here's the, you know, control of of this, you know, amazing machine. And oh, here's this excitement and this thrill of this dynamic, you know, sequence of events that gets me into the air and above all of the, the drum and traffic of Atlanta. And it was so invigorating that it really was it like a cornerstone event for my life? I had to change everything I was doing to get after this pursuit of aviation. Same. I agree with Stephanie. It's it's something that kind of just makes you feel alive, you know, and you don't really know that it exists unless you, you get to go through the steps of actually doing it, you know, boarding the aircraft and, you know, hearing the safety presentation and getting to feel the takeoff and how exhilarating it is to land. I definitely do not think it would have been something I would have ever considered had my, my mom not taken me on those flights. Those experiences mattered. You know, Stephanie, you were talking about that first discovery flight. How did you both get to the point where you were like, I want to take a discovery flight. I want to go into training as a pilot. How did you even get there? That question is leads me to an answer that is one of my funniest stories. Um, I was a ninth grader, and I will be honest, I struggled in my ninth grade year. The transition for me was um, just dramatic. Um, I went from just kind of uh, this ballerina dance girl uh, to, hey, I like boys to, oh my gosh, I have to get a training bra. Oh my God. It was like, and oh, by the way, here's all this access to these big kids who have cars and can help us break rules, like, you know, leaving school early and I won't even say anything else on this recording. (laughs) So, um, but my grades were suffering and I was just struggling to fit in socially. Um, Fast forward to somewhere in the spring of my freshman year, we had a magnet program that required us to participate in the geography bee. So go into the idea that I've always loved travel. Geography is my favorite subject. I still didn't want to be there on a Saturday. And my friends and I had conspired to, you know, bomb the event so we could get out as soon as we could. Anyways, we were all required to stay for the whole event. So it was like, uh uh-oh, now we've got to actually perform. And I really found myself in the final round and they ran through all the prizes that were going to be awarded first place was this laundry list of things and a sailing lesson. And then the second place was the same things, except it was a a free flight lesson. And I'm like, in my mind, immediately saying, this is over. I want to go fly. Um, And and I let it play out and I was able to negotiate the the flight lesson, even though I won the contest, um, according to my mom. And so um, I don't think I knew how it was going to affect me, but that was exciting to me. And that was where it all began for me. Um, I left that 
um, magnet program that was in international studies and went to the math and science magnet program, uh, still Atlanta public schools, but definitely a focus on STEM related um, education. And so that has made the difference for me entirely. What a serendipitous story. That is so lovely. Yeah, I was had to go to summer school, get my grades up, but it worked. <laughs> but it worked. But it worked. <laughs> Kelly, how about you? Uh, In my case, it was yet again, my mother, um, through her job at the airline, she constantly had employees that would come in, um, you know, needing help at the credit union. And one happened to be a pilot one day. And she mentioned that, you know, she had a daughter that, you know, was interested in aviation amongst all the other things. Um, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, And honestly, the only reason why I hadn't quite settled on aviation, though I lit up every time we would go to the local airport for dinner, was because I had never seen a pilot that looked like me. So this pilot told my mother about a summer camp um, that the organization of what was airline professionals at the time, or airline pilots, excuse me, um, in conjunction with Delta Airlines, hosted every summer, free of charge to students in the Atlanta, Georgia area. So I was 18 years old, um, a month outside of high school graduation. And she was just like, hey, I know you've got these college plans. You're going to go to state school. You want to be an English major. That was what I had temporarily decided anyhow. And um, but I think you should do this summer program. And my mother, you know, being super close to me and just knowing me really well, I took her up on it. I applied and I, I got in and it changed my life over the course of that summer. Similar to Stephanie, we were able to do a discovery flight. Um, We were also able to tour like the tech ops facilities of, you know, the local airlines and some of the cargo carriers. I got to meet real life pilots who look like me for the first time in my life. And it was from that moment um, when they made the announcement at the end of that camp, they were like, well, there's another camp, you know, and instead of it being like the 80 to 90 of you, it's only 10. And there's a lot more rigorous application process and interview process. But if you're chosen, you get 40 hours of ground instruction and 15 hours of flight instruction. If you pass all of the requirements, then essentially you get to solo an aircraft by yourself. And for me, I was just like, wow, when, whenever am I going to get the opportunity to do something like this? So the summer after my freshman year of college, though I was a year too old because I was very persuasive and convincing, um, they decided to allow an 11th student into the normally 10 student program. And I did complete all the training and I soloed the summer that I was 19. And needless to say, I left English and all of that behind and started chasing airplanes, um, which has undoubtedly, you know, paid off. So when you talk about soloing a flight, that's you flying the plane. Correct? Yes. Sorry about at that. 19, yes. At 19. <laughs> My 19-year-old self, and believe it or not, you can you do it much younger. You can solo a plane before you can drive a car. <laughs> I know that probably is a little disconcerting to some people. Uh, but yes, a single engine Cessna 172 was the first aircraft that I flew. Three takeoffs and three landings um, where you come to a complete stop and you taxi back between each one um, is considered your, your solo flight. And at the end of it, they cut your, your tail, your t-shirt um, on your back and your instructor writes, you know, the date and, you know, the airport that you were at. And it's just something I still have that. Um, It meant a lot, but it was everything. What does that first liftoff feel like? The first one alone is scary, but in a strange way, I had never felt more free. And, And I think for me, that that was the feeling that I knew I would be chasing for the rest of my life. Stephanie, how was your first flight where you were in control? Yes, I think that uh, that same experience of 
being manipulating the controls, being the basically the sole proprietor of this adventure. It was that invigorating. It's like, I will never stop loving this no matter how much struggle I go through. And I've been through a lot. Although I started at 13, I didn't actually solo until I had finished college. So, um, but yes, it was that same kind of, you know, gratifying uh, feeling. And I, and I use the word feeling a lot because I think there are people out there who really get into aviation for the gear and the, and the, um, the science and the physics behind it. And I'm very much emotional and, and feeling about it. Once you had both, you know, either settled on or settled into the path of pursuing aviation and being a pilot as your potential future career... What was that experience like? What was it like starting out in aviation as a young pilot? Uh, I will say that starting out in aviation as a young pilot was, let's say, circuitous because it's never how you think it's going to go. I, like I said, I started when I was 13. I didn't actually solo until I was 22. And then I didn't get my private pilot's license until I was 23. And then I didn't actually get, I say, into the career groove. Um, I didn't fly in the military, which is what I had intended. And so some of what I signed myself up with in the military protracted this the process. But once I got in the right frame of mind and needed guidance, the Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals, OBAP, was, um, I think, a foundation for me. I joined them as a private pilot and made contact with different mentors who gave me guidance in how I should proceed to get to commercial license. And so with general aviation, it's um, one lesson at a time and ground school. And um, so I did a I think a very accelerated program and that I was going seven days a week once I had that private pilot license. I'd worked on my instrument rating, which is basically to be able to fly without seeing outside the window. And once that milestone was accomplished, it was like, boom, three months later, I'm a certified flight instructor. And now it's really just like, okay, here's your certificate to be able to learn because um, really you never stop learning. And it certainly was um, a whirlwind experience. And I was broke as a joke. I mean, like I couldn't, I was just trying to rub two nickels together um, to make it work. But I was so happy because I was doing what I love doing seven days a week. And I was exhausted by it. And that was even more, you know, exciting. (laughs) Kelly, what about you? What was your experience like? Um, Very similar to Stephanie's. Um, I did not go the military route either, um, choosing to go rather instead through an accelerated program. Uh, I completed majority of my ratings when I was 22 years old, but very similarly, there's a lot of money. You know, my parents really didn't, you know, have it to contribute. So there's a combination of a a lot of loans, you know, a lot of uh, fundraisings, a couple of scholarships, you know, which I was really fortunate to receive, but a lot of really hard work. Uh, ultimately, and just that being what I lived, ate, slept, breathed, you know, seven days a week for about a year straight until I also received uh, my certified flight instructor certificate. Um, 
which as Stephanie did say is, you know, kind of your license to learn. And I learned so much in teaching the students uh, that I had. Um, ultimately, even I had to move out to California to work for a flight school for about a year and a half, just because at that point in time, we were in the recession uh, back in 2008, and there weren't very many flight instructor jobs um, at all locally. Uh, so I actually got the opportunity to teach a lot of foreign students. But that in and of itself uh, has definitely contributed to, I guess, just what it is to do something in service of a dream. Um, when it was hard, when I was broke, when I was lonely, when I missed my family, when I didn't have the opportunity to do some of the things that, you know, my friends who had chosen other career paths, you know, were doing. Um, I don't regret any of it, but definitely I, I look back on it and I understand um, what all the hard work was for and, you know, how it helped contribute to the person that essentially, you know, this industry has continued to make, you know, all of the, the female pilots that I've known. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Yeah. You, know, you, you both mentioned the financial challenges and how at points um, you were pretty broke. During those programs, did you get the sense that your fellow students were facing similar financial barriers or do you think it was varied? And do you think there should be more scholarships um, like the ones that you managed to take part in, Kelly? Um, it definitely was varied. Um, I opted to go to a private university. I was only able to afford it for the period of about a year and a half. And I had a work study job. I had a part-time job on top of a full course load and trying to do flight lessons all at once. And 
I will admit it was sometimes a little disheartening, you know, to see the students who, you know, could go out on the weekends or, you know, didn't have to work so many jobs, you know, in between classes and between flight lessons. And um, luckily, again, I had had enough peers and I had my family who, you know, was supportive and would try to lend me the encouragement that I needed. I definitely think um, far more scholarships would have been helpful. There's a lot more of that, you know, that exists now, um, including through um the organization that both Stephanie and I are part of, Sisters of the Skies, um, that's one of the primary things that we advocate for. And I'll let her, you know, expand a little bit more on that. But that is definitely the key uh, as far as what I've been able to tell, just especially with Black female pilots. Um, it's the access, you know, that matters. And it's also the representation. So I'm here for more scholarships. Stephanie, do you want to talk a little bit about Sisters of the Skies? I would love to. So um, Sisters of the Skies is a nonprofit organization. And what our mission is, is scholarship, mentorship and outreach. And we are focused really on all three of them. But our growing capability is in that scholarship realm. I mean, we used to make a joke. It was like at some point it'll only be trust fund babies that can become pilots um, because of the expense. And when the price of a fuel went up, the price of flight training went up. And um, I don't know that it's come back down. It's just kind of maybe uh, plateaued. But I said all of that to say, even if we get somebody who's got the flying bug, their biggest challenge in all likelihood will be that financial hurdle. It can, um, you know, there are other things that will come into play. And that's where I think our mentorship uh, program helps because we do struggle with the um, the emotion and the side of being, I think, what we call unicorns in this industry. I'll just throw you some statistics, but it's like um, we are less than a 1% presence in the, the aviation career field in the United States. I mean... It's actually like less than one-tenth of a percent. And so um, that has got to change. And that's part of what our mission is geared towards. The vision is to see our sisterhood increase so that when, um, you know, myself and Kelly move on to do other things in our transition, I won't call it retirement, there'll be at least 10 people behind us that, that represent our same demographic in that, in that career field. I think that's a really sobering statistic, especially considering that just 7% of all pilots are women, according to the FAA. You both spoke earlier about representation. You know, how have these statistics impacted your experience as pilots? Um, well, it's hard for me to quantify that impact. I will tell you this. I came through the military um, when I was commissioned it was just after the combat exclusion law was lifted. Um, so I started out in the Naval uh, Navigator Program, Naval Flight Officer Program. And I was the first of my type to appear in that training space, that pipeline. And there were people who either wholly endorsed what I was doing or there were people who were adamantly opposed to it. And it was hard to tell why. It was hard to tell who was uh, for it or against it unless they were very vocal about supporting me. But there were so many subjective you know, milestones where you can't even see what's happening. The, the, the idea that somebody would um, try to characterize you based on how you look and not how you perform, um, it was difficult to 
uh, untangle. And I got to a point where I had completed the syllabus and I was flying with a guy who was prepared to give me this um, unsatisfactory grade. And that's an actual category <laughs> of grading. And I had completed everything I needed. He was just showing me a demonstration and it was like, oh, I got her. And I said to him, you know, is it possible that you would have the ability to give me the equivalent, you know, below average score uh, before you actually give me this unsatisfactory? And he says, no, if I lower my standards for you, I'd have to lower my standards for everyone. And so that to me inferred that he thought somehow lower standards had resulted in my success to get to that point. And I had, you know, was two years into it, um, thoroughly disgusted, but actually in hindsight, fully in hindsight, am glad that happened because then I didn't commit myself to the navigator job, uh, which would have incurred another seven year commitment for the Navy. And I also didn't want to fight it. So at that point I had the choice to either try to fight to stay or go ahead and request to redesignate. And that's how I ended up redesignating to Supply Corps. But it was a very difficult choice to make. Um, very much part of my personality is if you tell me no, I'm gonna fight to say yes. And I'm gonna, <laughs> so it was tough for me to walk away, um, but it was ultimately the best thing for me because it got me focused back on the goal of flying and being the pilot that I wanted to be. I will say that, um, the needle is moving. It's finally starting to, I think, uh, move toward the direction of diversity and, and our organization is starting to see that as we grow. And we know we're not gonna have every black woman that flies join us, but our numbers are, are definitely increasing. By this past year, we increased by 60%. Um, so we're oh, we're at the point where we're over a hundred uh, total members, and that's women who are commercially rated or better. So that's a milestone in and of itself to get to that point. And um, we're seeing in our mentorship program young women who either are doing career transition or who have you know embarked on the aviation training journey go through one year in the mentorship program and then come in as members you know, within that 12 month period, uh, because they will have achieved their commercial rating uh, while they were working in the mentorship program with us. So that's very gratifying. And um, yeah, like I said, when I see, we basically went from like zero in uh, to, you know, over a hundred, um, maybe probably in, in the last three decades, there was always one or two here or there. Um, our heritage or our lineage maybe goes back to Bessie Coleman and this is her 100th anniversary of her uh, achieving her pilot license and um, she was the first African-American pilot period and she had to travel to France to accomplish that um, so we're yeah we're coming from a place where there was very very much a difficult road to go just to get the opportunity to being able to provide the funding and the guidance and the outreach to young women of color to get to that place. Kelly, um, you know, when you were talking about going to your first 
summer camp and seeing somebody who looked like you now that you have a career in aviation thinking about representation you know what what does that look like in in your life right now it matters to me significantly um i do have a number of mentees as it was mentors you know who paved the way for all of the doors that i essentially learn to develop the tools to open, you know, on my own, because it's not as if my mentors could go and actually do it for me. Um, and there were a lot of places and rooms that I ended up finding myself in that, you know, I didn't know, you know, how loud am I allowed to raise my voice? You know, how much is it a, that I'm allowed to show up as myself in this space and still be respected and um, developed, you know, does my career matter just as much as everyone else's? And I do feel like over the course of my career, um, through the people that have poured into me and then my current ability now to actively and intentionally pour into other young girls, it does mean everything. It means that as Stephanie said, the needle is, it's finally moving. Um, especially in the, the sector that I work in now with corporate aviation, there's not a lot of female representation, much less uh, Black female representation in that world either. And I do take some of the remarks uh, occasionally that I'll get from people, you know, on the ramp, I've actually been stopped to say like, can you show me your your aircrew badge? You know, where is it that you're going exactly? To airports that I've been in and out of, you know, for, for years. Um, but again, I think even fully dressed in uniform, you know, people sometimes aren't able to see what they haven't actually seen. So I don't take those opportunities negatively in the sense that, yeah, it could get me down, but in the same token, I can say, hey, yeah, it's this aircraft over here that I fly. How about, you know, you want to come look at it? Do you want a tour? You know, do you want to know things about, you know, just what I do day to day? I don't, I don't take it as a I guess a negative in the sense of it's it's not going to stop me. It just propels me again to reach out and to pull people forward. You mentioned that there aren't many Black women in corporate aviation. As the first Black female pilot at Coca-Cola, what does it feel like to hold the title of first? It feels some days a little lonesome. And I don't say that in the sense that I don't have a community because I think that's a natural feeling. It's a natural feeling to be, I guess, somebody that just introduces new ideas, you know, into a space that is quite used to operating in the sense that it's been. But I get to bring every sister that I've met along my journey with me into that space. Uh, so for me, there's a lot of responsibility, but also in knowing that 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 lonesome feeling that's temporary. Um, because I'm never truly alone. And I know that however long I stay in this space, even if it's for the next 30 years of my career, that there will be multiple of me, you know, able to walk, you know, in those steps because I'm walking in the steps of those that have gone before me. So pilots and flight attendants have had to deal with furloughs or the threat of furloughs throughout the pandemic in the past year. What has the past year been like for you? So I will tell you that I, in the last 12 months, have flown very little. Um, the company that I fly for is an international carrier, legacy carrier, and they started talking about furloughs um, somewhere in the um, late spring. And um, this idea of warn letters where they're gonna alert people that there's a potential of being furloughed started happening 
in the late summer. I am fortunate based on seniority that I haven't received a WARN letter. Um, we actually have just been notified of our second round of WARN letters that went out and I'm still, um, again, in good fortune. Um, but because the plane that I flew back in March of 2020 uh, was grounded. I was on the Boeing 757-767, um, mostly international trips. Um, they were grounded almost immediately when we went into quarantine. So I didn't fly for uh, about nine months because of that grounding and then getting scheduled for training and being kind of in a seniority baseline to get retrained. Um, and that, so I went back to the aircraft that I flew before, which is the Airbus 320. And it's an international qualified position that I hold. Um, so we have been doing some international flying, but it's like um, much more limited than previously. So far I've only been in, um, Mexico and the Caribbean. You know, I think, you know, when I think back to last March, everyone was in a state of shock because it, it felt like it all happened so quickly, even if that wasn't quite the case. What was that early period of being grounded like? It's funny because at first I was excited. I was like, oh, this is the most time I've spent at home consecutively. And then I think at about week six, I'm looking at my husband in his eyes and I'm like, baby, this is going to make us or break us. <laughs> and he's just like busted out laughing because he's like, oh, my God, I didn't really want to say anything. But I'm like, don't you have a trip to go on at some point? <laughs> So um, we made it. Thank God. Yes, it's actually brought us closer together. And I think um, a common theme is that, you know, we've had more connection, um, even if it hasn't been there in person um, with our family. And we've had obviously between the two of us more connection. And I've just really been grateful every day that I have him in the same space and that we're um, growing together because um yeah, there are probably plenty of people who are like, oh, can't get out of here fast enough. And I don't want to make light of that, that tragedy either. You know, Kelly, what have the last 12 months and maybe even those first beginning thoughts about the pandemic, what has that been like for you? Um, I pretty much would have to echo Stephanie. Um, initially, it was like, wow, this is the, the most time I've spent at home in almost 15 years. I mean, just between all of the traveling and, you know, flying jobs. And it was nice. Um, at the time, my then fiance, it was just kind of like, oh, great, we have time to cook all these recipes and, you know, catch up on Netflix. And then it was withdrawal, um, you know, from doing what it was I've always, you know, dreamed to do. And, 75% of the travel that my company does as well is international. So we conducted our final flight about mid-March and, you know, we're all hopeful, just like, okay, well, you know, just give it a month, two months and we'd follow back up and, you know, nothing changed. Um, I am very fortunate in the sense that our flight department is still here. You know, it's still strong. Um, we have resumed limited travel. Most countries, there are such stringent requirements for entry and um, re-entry into the U.S., you know, again, that it's almost not worth, you know, going. And so a lot of the executives have gravitated to virtual 
which again is good. Um, it makes things efficient, but it keeps us grounded. And we are hopeful, you know, later this year that things will resume more of a, a normal schedule. It'll be nice to get back uh, into the world. And my now husband, I got married in quarantine in a civil Congratulations, ceremony. Congratulations, first of all. <laughs> Thank Slip you. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Because well, we made it. We survived. We were just kind of like, we can't make it through this. I don't I don't really know what to tell you. So um, again, there was a lot of good in the year. Ironically enough, there was a lot of joy, uh, but definitely looking forward to getting back to business as usual. Amazing. I was going to ask one question so we don't wrap up. <laughs> quite on on, on a pandemic note <laughs> on a pandemic note which is that you know looking to that future which starts to feel a little bit closer you know both of your jobs have taken you to so many places around the world if you could just get in your plane where's the first place you'd go so it's funny you asked that. Kelly and I were talking about it earlier. <laughs> I started making a list when we went into lockdown. And like the first, actually, like the first five places were all within the U.S. I want to go to Seattle and I want to, you know, see the public market. I want to go to Washington, D.C. I used to live there and I'm like, oh, man, I miss my friends in D.C. I want to be able to do like the things that I used to be able to go do when I went to D.C., um, and then uh, I start to think about like, why haven't I been skiing? How about if I go to <laughs> how about if I go to Colorado? And yeah, so a lot of it's been like these domestic dreams, <laughs> domestic travel dreams. I love that. Love that. Same here. Um, honestly, I think when you can't go anywhere in the world, your backyard kind of becomes really interesting because you're you're just kind of like, hey, this is not too far. Maybe we could drive. Maybe we could um, do something along those lines. But yeah, we thought about going snowmobiling out in Breckenridge. We haven't gone anywhere. Um, but absolute dream. I want to go to Marrakesh. Um, it's been on the list for a while. I haven't gone there even for work. So it's pretty high up there, but really anywhere at this point point <laughs> <laughs> I love it agree <laughs> um if people want to keep up with where you're going for work and where you're going on a hopefully soon vacation where can people find you both on social media my handle is at pilot Steph. It's very easy <laughs> at pilot Steph for um I'm on clubhouse now on um twitter and on instagram I um, want to just say I gave up Instagram for Lent. I will see how long that lasts. <laughs> Noted. Noted. And, Kelly, and great decision. Yeah, great I decision. About to say. <laughs> um, Kelly, how about you? Uh, I can be found on Instagram at sheflyesjets. Oh my and God, that's what a good handle. I'm limited on social media. <laughs> no, that's great. And then, and actually, to that earlier point, if people want to look up Sisters of the Skies, um, where should they head? So yes, they're also on um, Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Sisters of the Skies, um, plural skies, and then Facebook as well. And um, we're also on LinkedIn there too. Perfect. Uh, you can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. And me at Lale Hannah. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel at Women Who Travel on Instagram. Subscribe to our newsletter and join our Facebook group. We will have links to Sisters of the Skies and Stephanie and Kelly's social media in the show notes. So be sure to check them out and we'll talk to you next week. 
Hey, it's Chris Klemek here. If you like this show, you might enjoy There's More to That. It's a new podcast from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX where I'll be talking to journalists around the globe, taking inspiration from the Smithsonian Institution's museums and research centers and using insightful reporting to explore the mysteries of the wider world. Plus, every episode comes with at least one conveniently packaged fact for you to share at your next dinner party. So check us out. Subscribe to There's More to That from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX and find out how much more there is to almost everything. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.